0: I'm Mahani Jahangiri, and welcome to Conversations With My Dog. I am the creator of DOGA, yoga for you and your dog, and this podcast aims to bring dog lovers together to discuss the impact they have on our lives. Today's guest is Wendy Higgins, Director of International Media at Humane Society International. With more than 10 years' experience working in animal advocacy, media, and communications, Wendy has special expertise in issues such as Asia's dog meat trade, the fur trade and animal testing for cosmetics. A passionate animal protection professional, Wendy has worked with NGOs, non-governmental organizations that serve a social, political and humanitarian cause, politicians, celebrities, journalists and companies across the globe to bring an end to the suffering of animals, including launching HSI's Global Be Cruelty-Free campaign to end cosmetics, animal testing. In our last episode with Pip Thompson, we spoke about the dog meat trade in Korea. HSI works with dog meat farmers who want to leave the industry and help them switch to alternative livelihoods. The charity has today to permanently shut down seventeen dog meat farms, saving more than 2,000 dogs. Simon Cowell, recently donated 25,000 pounds to HSI to help close a dog meat farm in South Korea. The X Factor Boss contribution to Humane Society International, HSI, means more than 200 dogs and puppies bred for human consumption will now be saved, which is amazing work. Now, it's such an honor to welcome Wendy Higgins on the show today. And thank you so much for joining us, Wendy. Hello there. That was a mouthful. How are you today? And are you with your pet? What is your pet's name?
2: Right? Uh, do you have several pets? I have. Um, I have one. Um, one at the moment um, is a um, a Yorkie poo dog um, called Pip, who's seven um, and the love of my life. I've had lots of animals um, over the years in in my life, but, um, but one now.
0: Oh, how wonderful! So, so he's seven, just like Robbie. Robbie's eight, he's he's kind of almost senior now. Um, he's probably changed his personality. Have you noticed any difference in your dog yourself?
2: Um, he's got grumpier <laughs> for sure. They have. Um, <laughs> um but um, it's a, I mean, Pip's a funny old thing, really, because um, he looks really puppyish and his character. Um, is very puppyish. People usually, when they stop me, they, they ask me how old he is and they usually think I'm going to say, you know, a year old or something because that's how he presents. Um, but yeah, he sleeps a little bit more and he's a little bit more grumpy. But other than that, he's he's just himself really. That's amazing because Robbie, I have to actually excuse
0: him, his personality to, to other uh, dog owners. For example, if the, a puppy comes up to him, he will growl or do a funny sort of, I, let me try to imitate it, sort of a, uh, like, like, like a gremlin and something. he just barks them, off, barks them away and I have to explain that Robbie is social he's a yoga dog but he's sort of become grumpy and old just like me yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's really it's, it's, it's embarrassing to have to start to apologise for your dog's behaviour because that never was an issue before um, yeah. it's just, it's
2: in recent years yeah I mean I, I, I kind of um, I apologise I apologise if people um, approach Pip um, uh, and they do all the right things. What I suppose, as I've got older and less tolerant of people, just a bit like Pip, um, if if people approach him in a really silly way um, that is bound to set him off, um, I'm less apologetic and I, and I more use that as a moment to educate people about how to respect dog's personal boundaries because otherwise you just kind of set them up. To fail and then everyone blames the dog for grumpy and it's really not it's not his fault really it's that you know some someone's approached him too fast or um invaded his personal space and made him feel uncomfortable so i I think um people i guess need to to learn a bit more about how to um how to be more dog absolutely i mean they're all they have all the rights
0: to be you know grumpy and have a personality um <laughs> in fact i don't know uh, have, have, have you read the book of um, mark beckoff uh, um, the lot the emotional lives of animals i mean it's fascinating yeah it's a great it's, book yeah it's it's i've only just started and i'm i'm going to be interviewing him in a couple of months and i need to do my research there because it's just so fascinating i didn't know all the emotions that they can have which is some um, not just jealousy, happiness, resentment, resentment. Mm. Apparently, <laughs> I wonder if Robbie's resentful towards me, you know, resentful. Uh, a lot of very human, What? sorry, very human, human emotions, proper human emotions, yeah. not just fear. Uh, I'm yeah. kind of jumping the gun in our interview, but it's just so fascinating just to look at that. And I was wondering whether you had read the book, Uh, previously, um, I was going to ask you at the end, what do you think about the book? But uh, it maybe will lead us very nicely into all the work that you're doing anyway. So um, what did you think, uh, his opinions on on emotions? Do you think this is true? Do they
2: have all these emotions? I do. I I do. And I think we often, um, as as animal campaigners and animal advocates, um, it's all too easy for people um, to accuse us of Anthropomorphising animals by ascribing them human emotions, and I often, I'm always puzzled by that. And, and I, and I, I think that it's, um, it tends to be from people that don't really have connections with animals. Because if you do have connections with animals, there is no question in your mind um, that they have a vast array of, um, of emotions. It's just that we've claimed them as our own, but that's just nonsense. It doesn't make any sense um and that's not that you you know you need to take back to the extreme these animals have emotions in their own right they they are individuals they don't have to be like humans but we share emotions maybe that's a um we have emotions in common maybe that's a, an easier way to describe it and certainly you know my my connection with my dog um and I you know I love the very bones of that dog um and would do anything for him and I and I I feel that I really know him very deeply, um, and he has such an array of different emotions um, at, that I can I can connect with and understand on a very human level. Um, and I'm very thankful for that because I think it it deepens my connection with him. And one of the things that I'm really mindful of um, uh, with with him is what his experience of his life with me is because um, we, of course, can't speak the same language. And I often think how frustrating it must be for an intelligent animal to, to live his life in a family group of individuals with whom he can't actually communicate. And so I spend quite a lot of time trying to understand him on his level and trying to, you know, be more dog, um, to make to make communication easier for him and to understand his body language as a kind of a secondary um non-spoken language. So I find it fascinating. And I think the more that you let yourself Um, you know allow yourself to think of animals on that emotional level the deeper that connection you'll have and and, and that's really a wonderful thing it is a wonderful thing
0: but a lot of people think we're barking mad I mean this is the thing Uh, I have people that say oh you're not dressing up your dog with a a, in a a raincoat today yes I am Uh, or or a jacket yes I do yes I do and you know uh, you know it's quite sad if you humanize a dog human what does that mean humanize a dog you know um, and why the separation? I think that's what we're talking. Why the separation? Why do we think the animal is lesser than us? That, I think that is what Mark mm. Beckhoff is talking about generally. Why, where does
2: that actually come from? Where does it come from? Because yeah. and I because, and I, I agree, okay. it, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? As well, Marnie, because it allows you as soon as you start thinking about animals as as less and other otherness gives you permission to do things to and with that animal that you wouldn't do to other human beings. And I think that um, that, that, that otherness has got a lot to answer for in the way that, that we deal with animals. Absolutely.
0: Which leads me to all of your work. And where do we begin? I, I, I can't. I, like I said, you have such a long introduction. And where do we begin? Maybe first and foremost, um, when were you introduced to animals uh, as
2: a child? Did you have did you grow up with, with, with animals? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely as a child. Um, I, we always had animals in the house. I can remember. Um, I was lucky enough as a kid to live in a, in a pretty big house with a big garden um and we had um we had a labrador candy who we absolutely adored and grew up with her um a cat called Paula um a uh, various cats actually that my dad would bring home homeless cats that would turn up and he he'd bring them home and kittens um we had rabbits guinea pigs hamsters um, we rescued a deer once who was um, knocked down outside our house, and, and we nursed her back to health and released her back into the wild. Um, a crow called Oscar who um, fell out of his nest when he was a baby, and um, my dad um, and my sister and I had to teach him to fly. <laughs> um, and That's I mean, so I just brilliant. can't remember a time when we didn't have have animals, and I and I was always taught to respect them. Um and to be intrigued by them, and I think that set me off on the on the right path. And and what
0: was your dad's profession, if I may ask? What was your father's background?
2: Um, my dad had a a, a hardware uh, business. Um, he he built up a, a hardware uh, empire. So I mean, he was not a natural. Uh, kind of animal person, I think he probably wasn't an animal person at all before he met my mum um but she soon changed that. My mum has always been an animal lover um but yeah he had um, i think there was a place out the back of his um of his shop where he used to um uh, cut timber for customers and um I w- would imagine there were all kind of access points that stray cats could come in and um you know find some shelter and have their kittens and Um, so that's, I can remember that being a fairly regular memory of mine, dad turning up, um, around my bedtime, um, I would be in my pajamas and dad would turn up with a box of kittens and I can, I can remember how exciting that was.
0: I I was just going to say, how exciting would that be as a child when dad would come home with a a new animal? I mean, my dad only brought home magazines or chewing gum or something. I mean, we had a family, (laughs) Cat Sweetie, um, who was our family cat. She belonged to everybody. And, um, you know, we all, she was our family cat. But it's a shame we didn't have more animals in our family, though I grew up in Switzerland. So I was surrounded by animals, Uh, you know, farm animals, you know, uh, you know, going on long excursions to the mountains, the weekend. Animals were around us. But uh, it's such an exciting thing to receive a new fur member, in one's family, as a child, it's very deeply psychological. It, it builds the settings for for who you become, I think, and maybe even uh, that's. Do you reckon that's why you started working as, um, you know, an ambassador in that sense, uh, working on humanitarian and animal rights issues? Is it, does that go hand in hand? Does it have something to do with your past, with your childhood,
2: the kindness? I think. Yeah, I think I think definitely that was a solid foundation for me as a child. Many many of the animals with whom we shared our lives kind of found us. Um so, you know, it would be the 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 stray cat that dad would bring from home. Um I woke up one morning and there was a rabbit in the bottom of our garden. Um and that rabbit came to live with us. Um, it, uh, um, we had a, a tortoise at one point who just kind of wandered into our, our garden, stayed with us for a bit until we managed to track down um, uh, his or her owner. Um, you know, so the so animals would just kind of come into our lives, and we would share some time with them, and then you know release them or, or whatever. And that definitely that bond that we had with animals, I think, was really fundamental. Um, I never, I never realized because I became I became veggie when I was 10. Um, I can remember around the age of about eight or nine, I started to ask my mum what it was that we were eating on a Sunday. We'd have a Sunday roast and, and, and I I had the idea that it was a chicken and I didn't really know whether that was really a chicken, like, you know, the bird that I would see running around. or And she would, she would reassure me and say, no, no, don't, you know, not to upset me. Um, it's vegetables made into a chicken shape. And you know, when I was eight, nine, I kind of thought, oh, okay, no, that's that's fine. When I, by the time I got to 10, I thought, I don't think that's true. Um, and that's when I decided I was going <laughs> <laughs> to be veggie. Um, but you know what, Marnie, was really fascinating is it was at that point that I found out that my mum was veggie. Um, she'd never said it. She'd never made it an issue. She didn't want to... Um, you know, make me feel bad or to push me in one direction or another. But when I made the decision for myself, she said, oh, well, that's cool because, you know, I'm veggie too. And actually, you know, I found out that my nan was largely veggie as well. I hadn't, I must have been a very selfish child and not paid any attention to what anyone else was eating. But, um, you know, I, 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 I decided that I just couldn't, once I knew that the animals on my plate were the animals that I loved, I just couldn't, I didn't see any difference between those animals and the dogs and cats and guinea pigs and hamsters that were, as far as I was concerned, members of my family. So that was a very, very easy decision. And my mum was was deeply compassionate towards animals. My dad um, also, the kindness with which he treated the animals really left an impression on me. Um, And I knew from a very early age, I kind of burdened myself with the sorrow of The enormity of of animal exploitation, Um, starting off with fox hunting and animal testing, I was consumed by the injustice of those things. And I used to I used to descend into uh, weeping. Um and my mum would, would comfort me and, and say, you know, I wish I could tell you that the world was was better. But, you know, these these are true these are true things that you're reading about in in leaflets. And I just pledged to myself that I would have to do something about that. And I can remember that being a very early memory of mine, that if this was true, if these when animals really early. were suffering, I would have to do something Absolutely. about it. About ten or eleven, I would say. Ten or eleven, I would just wanted to ask because
0: that's when when it changes, when it also hormonally <laughs> we change around that time. So uh, that's when you became more sensitive,
2: more sensitive. I to think, this, yeah. Uh, I food think food so, and I and I and stuff. I think it was. Um, I think it was. It was the realization that all of this bad stuff was going on in the world, and and I hadn't known or wanted to know. Maybe um, it's when I started to get. Um, more active in animal rights I started to join every animal organization I could possibly come across Um, you know my my jacket would be covered in um, stickers and badges of of, you know hunt sabs and um, anti-fur organizations and I just wanted to know as much as possible because um, I'd been in such ignorance about what animals went through you know that I paid a heavy price for that knowledge because it did make me extremely unhappy and frustrated but and the way that i dealt with that was was to say you know rather than internalize that and be miserable i'm going to i'm just going to change the world then i wanted to ask you did you ever think about changing the world did you have that larger than
0: life epiphany that you were for me it was to become an actress at that time but to be the center of attention and you thought about changing the world that's really powerful stuff, because this is what probably take, takes you all the way to now. I mean, that feeling, that um, commitment, that vow that you made to yourself, I'm going to change this world. I'm going to turn something around. Am I correct with this? Is it still in you, that
2: that voice? It, it is. Um, I mean, I think at that age, the 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 missing piece of the puzzle that hadn't occurred to me is that it's quite difficult to change the world. Um, so that kind of naive determination that I felt as a kid, which drove me and which I'm you know very grateful for because it had it did set me on the path um, to putting that into into action. Um, you know, I was unaware at that point of the scale of animal suffering and how invested people were in that animal suffering and how difficult that journey would be. But it definitely Gave me a purpose. It definitely. There was just no question in my mind that this was wrong. That animals shouldn't be treated like this. And I just kind of thought, if if I if I just put up with it and don't do anything about it, I'm part of the problem. And I, so I started with myself. Um, so I changed what I ate and what I wore, and you know, made sure that I lived my life in a way that respected animals, um, and then looked externally. Um, And throughout all of the kind of the phases in my life that would, you know, that set me on a path for direct action. So protests, marches, um, hunt sabbing. Um, And then I guess I thought, you know, there has to be something more than this. This makes me feel good. I feel um, and it's very essential to feel like you're doing something, you're getting active um but I'm not having a big enough impact um and I I want to to change that and that's when um after I left university really I started to um to think about well I this is what I want to do this is I'm going to have to get serious about this if I'm going to actually make an impact
0: and can I just interrupt you (laughs) what did you study at university then
2: Oh well, I mean, nothing related at all. So um, uh, and and probably quite an odd subject for a, a complete atheist. I, I studied comparative religion, um, and I did I did that because um, I I, f- I found it fascinating why um, why people and how people believe something um, that I just didn't believe. Um, but I found at a very fundamental level, it's a real window into humanity. Um, and I didn't, and I, I think because I came at it with no faith, it allowed me to have an open mind about all faiths. And I found that very valuable in my studies. I can remember very clearly how challenging some of um, uh, the people that I was at university with who did have a very, very strong faith. Um, how difficult they found it studying other faiths with an open mind, um, so I was grateful for the fact that i didn 't have that issue, and I could just you know treat them all equally and um, and I found that fascinating and, and still do actually it 's a subject that still fascinates me, um, but you know not i didn 't do any it wasn 't a vocational degree it was just something that I thought, what can I do for three years that I really enjoy and, and I really enjoyed um, studying Buddhism and Hinduism at school. Um, And so that's what I decided to do. Absolutely. And which leads also into all the work
0: that you're doing with HSI. I mean, let's jump dog meat trade when you, you know, I know you uh, personally from and Pip Thompson from this, you know, when you go into a South Korean uh, dog farm and and you have to negotiate, you have to communicate to these men, women who run these um, uh, these businesses uh, of, of dog meat. I mean, doesn't there you know you need to you have to have this open-mindedness don't you you have to be able to respect the other person's view culture uh, ethical background it's that that must have helped you a lot studying religion such as buddhism hinduism to understand this
2: yeah it's a good point Moni. i think um i think it probably has um and 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 to to be involved in a discipline where you have to, to study objectively um, a set of beliefs and practices that you don't share, but in a respectful way, um, I think probably did um, stand me in good stead um, for a number of the issues that I work on at HSI, which have a cultural aspect to it, if you like. There are, there are lots of um, lots of different countries that we work in and lots of different areas of animal abuse or mistreatment that require um, a, an open mind and an open heart. Um, because until you understand people um, and people are so often the key to, to problems with animals, the way that we treat animals, um, it, it it really, I think, is impossible for you to find a solution. and. HSI as an organisation and I as an individual um, have solutions at the heart of everything that we do. It's probably why we're such a good fit. Um, there are there are infinite opportunities for protesting, um, uh, but you know if you don't have a solution, you're really just screaming into a pillow. And you know life's too short for that. If if my intention is to leave this earth having made a difference for animals, then. I, I, I knew from day one that I needed to focus on solutions and that means understanding people. It means taking the time to not just be outraged, um, or to harness your your outrage um and and to turn that into a way to fix the problem. And there is always a way to fix the problem. Sometimes it takes a longer path because you have to convince people um to to, to come to the table, but there is always solution. And it's about finding that solution. So yeah, I think, you know, the first time I stepped foot on a dog meat farm, I did have to, to take a moment, I think you and I've spoken about this before, it really took me aback. Um, You know, I I struggled um, with my emotions, because it was just so awful. Um, And I will always be grateful to my colleague, Adam, who, you know, gave me a couple of minutes to to get my crying done, and then just kind of patted me on the back and said, "We've got work to do. These dogs need us." Um, and he was, and he was right. It was, you know, his way of sort of saying, you know, pull yourself together. We've got, we've got dogs to rescue. Absolutely. Can you
0: take us through the process of uh, shutting down a dog meat farm, step by step? What actually happens? Because people think you just cruise in, you close the doors, you kick everybody out, you just go, you know. You know, it cannot be that way, can it? I mean, maybe for P- Pippa, did mention how difficult it was to be part of this, but she she helped. She had to, you know, she supported all of you, and she had to put her emotions aside. But what is the actual step to step process?
2: Yeah, it's a. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. People do um, often think that um, you know we're we're taking a dog farm by force, or that we're um, you know persuading a dog farmer to, to close. Um, none of which is is true um, so really the, the very the beginning of that process is we're approached by a dog farmer we, we never approach a dog farmer we never try to persuade a dog farmer to leave in truth Marnie we don't have to because there are so many um, dog farmers in South Korea who are really eager to exit the trade because fewer and fewer people are wanting to eat meat and it's becoming harder and harder for them to make a living plus on top of that they have a lot of societal and family shame to deal with they're often under a lot of pressure from their family to get out of the dog meat trade so they come to us usually because they've heard from another farmer Um, you know they're a tight-knit community they speak to each other they'll have heard from another dog farmer that they've worked with hsi and they had a good experience Um, so we'll be approached through that farmer um, by the new candidate, and then the conversation will start. Um, And that can be a few months in the making, getting to know each other. Um, We want to find out, um, you know, visit the farm, um, talk to the farmer about um, about their intentions, um, because for us, it's it's a package. Um, the, the, The point of closing farms is not just to save those individual dogs, which is great, don't get me wrong. Every life that we save is an absolute blessing. But the bigger picture, the reason why we affect these rescues is because we're building what I call a blueprint for change in South Korea. It's it's part of building the case for a phase-out of the dog meat trade and demonstrating to the government that it's possible To find that phase out solution hand in hand with dog farmers as part of that problem fixing um, rather than in antagonism with farmers, which has always been the history of um, those in South Korea who oppose dog meat and those in South Korea who work in the dog meat industry have always been at loggerheads. And it doesn't have to be like that because we have come to this kind of crossroads moment where, dog meat farmers increasingly want to find a way out. And HSI is the only programme on the ground in South Korea that offers them that, that practical help in getting out of that industry. So we'll talk to the farmer, um, we'll, we'll create a confidence between the two parties to the point where the farmer will sign a legal contract. Um, and that legal contract hands those dogs over to HSI and then the farmer is, is contractually obliged to permanently close the farm um, to remove, dismantle any um, farm infrastructure. So that's um, cages or um, any electrocution equipment that they have on the farm. Um, and um, and also that they must not farm dogs or indeed any animals again. Um and that's really fundamentally important for, for us, because that's incredible. In that any, respect, any animals, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, you know, the, the, the dog meat campaign is is one very um, critical campaign um, among many for, for HSI. We campaign on behalf of all animals, um, and so it would it would not be in any way justifiable for us to to say, um, you know, close your dog meat farm and fill your pages up with pigs, and that's completely fine by us. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really a critical part of the picture. Um, and it's it's from then it's a, a a process of doing the vaccinations and the blood works and getting those dogs to the point where all of the, um, the paperwork that we need to, to have done to show that they are fit to, to travel um, is completed um, and then comes rescue day. Um, so there's a lot a huge amount of work that goes in into- how long does that take it depends on farm to farm but i mean you're talking about a matter of um of, of months to um to get the farmer to sign the the contract um and to complete the necessary um uh blood works and vaccinations and then the tests you've got to you've got to prove that those animals have have completed Um, all of the health checks that they are required for overseas travel, because um, there just isn't the possibility to adopt those dogs in South Korea at the moment. Dog adoption is not part of um, Korean culture yet. It's something that we um, hope to change in the future. So um, the vast majority of dogs are flown overseas to find their forever homes, mainly um, Canada, America and a smaller number here in the UK. Um, and then rescue itself it really depends on the size of the farm so you know it, it can take anything from a few days to two weeks if we're talking about a large farm um, and that's that's hard work but there is nothing like standing on a, on a dog meat farm and looking around you and not hearing a single bark and just seeing empty cages that is that's quite a wonderful thing and Pip's uh, mentioned that as well she said
0: that was probably the highlight of her um mission when she didn 't hear anything anymore, uh, she said the sound the smell was st- horrific when you go in there. How many dogs are we talking about
2: about two hundred or, or more um it It really depends so we tend to focus on um small to medium sized uh dog farms, and that definitely is where um you 've got the majority of, of farmers looking to looking for a route out of the industry um so i mean we've closed small dog farms of 50 or so dogs um i think the largest farm we've closed is 350 um but an average one for us would be kind of 170 200 um and um you can get dog farms that are you know big mega farms of a thousand dogs or more um, but yeah, it, it it I I would say for us, hundred and seventy to two hundred is is kind of an average size for us. Um, and Pip's right. I mean, you know, the 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 noise, the cacophony of of panicked barking when you first step foot onto a dog meat farm with all of those dogs. Um, and it just that barking, it kind of it, as you first enter the farm. The dogs that are on the kind of the, the the outskirts of the farm will start barking first. And then that that barking will kind of cascade through the farm as they realize something's up. You know, someone's arrived. And usually when people arrive on a dog meat farm, it's not good news. And so there's a, a kind of a it's not a um, it's not a happy bark. It's it's almost like a warning bark. It's a, um, a frightened bark. Um, and the smell is is something else. It's a smell of, you know, putrefying. Food, which is restaurant waste um and piled and piled and piled of of dog waste um and and death and um and decay um it's you know they they're they're not pleasant places not really yeah. not pleasant places
0: what type of illnesses um can you find on these dog meat farms? There must be enormous you know viruses and things spreading it can't be healthy can it?
2: It's definitely not healthy, um, and they get no veterinary treatment at all. Um I would say it's um it, it tends to be more injuries um than than disease, although there's a there's a fair amount of um, skin disease. We we have to treat quite a lot of the dogs um for for skin disease. Some of them um have got really, really sore, sore skin. Um many of them have um injuries to their their, their feet pads because they have to spend their whole life balancing on the wire mesh of the floor of the cage um, and many of them will have pressure sores on their haunches as well because you know for the same reason they haven't got anything solid to, to sit on or, or lie on um, if they break a limb which can happen um they get no vet treatment um so whichever way that bone set at a funny angle that's um that's that's how it's gonna live for the for the rest of its days on the farm. Um eye infections, cherry eye is is um is is quite common. Um so yeah that, that that tends to be kind of you know the dogs with infections and battle scars I would say um is is really quite common. Um but you know by and large I I, I always find it really quite remarkable how resilient these these dogs are um and And how quickly many of them respond to human kindness, so the first person from our team that they will ever come into contact with um is our Korean campaigner, Nara Kim, who is just an angel sent from heaven I think um I've got so much love and respect for for Nara. Um, and she really will be their first experience of love and kindness, particularly if they've been born on the farm. Um, a few, num- a number of them will will be um, former pets, um, and they instantly respond to what is very familiar to them, um, and will try to repeat things that I guess used to work when they were in a family setting. So they'll offer a paw or roll over to have their tummy um, tickled, which is heartbreaking, really, if you. You know, they must be so bewildered having somehow ended up in a dog meat farm.
0: It's incredible. And how long does it take for these dogs to become ha- happy doggies again? You know, how long does it take for a dog to roll over on his back and let his belly be tickled? Uh, can it take up to months, or is it uh, some of
2: those dogs must be completely traumatized? Some of them are definitely um, traumatized. I, I think it, it takes. It takes some longer than others. Um some of them are, are just honestly I have to say it, it is just staggering how open they are to human attention and love, despite what must be, you know, just really terrible experiences with humans. Um they just it they haven't allowed it to change them and crush their spirit and and that is, you know, pretty amazing, really. There's one dog, um that um springs to mind um, a dog called millie who was on our 13th dog farm which is um one of the dog farms that that Thompson um came with me to close um and millie lives here in the uk and i mean she was just a ball of energy from the moment we set eyes on her um she didn't stop moving she didn't stop wagging her tail and she didn't have a bad bone in her body she was just the most just like a ray of sunshine um and uh, you know I've remained close to her a doctor who absolutely adores her um and that she that dog has always remained upbeat open-hearted um gentle um and you would just never know that she started life on a dog meat farm and she was a you know she was a fairly young dog when we when we found her, I I can't imagine that she wasn't born on that farm. So she had every reason to be suspicious and and nervous of of people, but she loves people. And, um, you know, I can think of several that are like that, but then, you know, for everyone like that, there are others that would break your heart um, who, as you say, are traumatised, very, very fearful, um, have really, you know, seen utter brutality, particularly, um, you know they will have seen dogs being dragged out of their cages never to return um, on that farm um, we found electrocution equipment right by um, actually one of the cages where Robin one of the dogs that Pip went on to adopt lived so little Robin must have seen dogs being strung up and electrocuted um, and really you know what that does to a to a dog i just i can't imagine but um you know it, it, there's nothing that can't be worked through it's just a matter of how much time it's going to take to get there and that's not me pretending that some of these dogs won't always be um you know have have the, have the a tendency to be slightly shy or f- afraid of new things um there'll be something about them that will tell you that they they came from a bad place and that sometimes they need a bit more time than they otherwise might um but what is really remarkable is that um many of them come round so quickly and and just kind of lean into love if you know what I mean as soon as they're shown that that compassion and that kindness and a soft bed and a um, a bowl of food and that they know that they found a place where they're going to be safe and they're not going to hurt anymore. Um, they they embrace that and that is just a really remarkable journey to see them go on. It's an incredible journey
0: and I just wonder if we should all become, you know, like dogs because I, I don't know if we have that capacity as, as humans to forgive like this or to let go or I, I don't know we could learn so much from them um, i was just wondering and one question springs to my mind wendy and this is quite serious this question because you know i do doga you know yoga for you and your dog and i've had new owners in the class with dogs i've had owners with rescue dogs in the class and i realize sometimes that not every owner is perfect For their dog, like I was sometimes wondering why certain people go for rescue dogs when they clearly suffer with mental health issues, anxiety, depression. They will most likely go for a dog that needs to be rescued, and I don't know whether that is a good thing because of the background of the dog that's already been uh, exposed to so much. Would do you believe that? The dog can potentially pick up on the instability of a human's mental health and is that a good
2: thing well i mean i i think we have to take it on a case-by-case basis um and i think that um you know dogs i fundamentally dogs need rescuing right They, they, they need homes um and i think that there are there are probably many situations where dogs regardless of whether they're rescued or um, or, or whatever their situation was, they're in a family setting that you know you wouldn't necessarily um, classify as a, a vulnerable um, uh, um, uh, family setting. But it's not necessarily right for that dog. So I think any dog could find themselves in the wrong family, um, and I think it's it's more a matter of matching the right dog with the right person, whatever the circumstances. I know. How of do you do that, that Wendy? when? Do you- well, I mean, I, you know, I'm 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 not an adoption expert, so perhaps I'm not the best person to ask. But I think probably, um, probably taking your time. I mean, you know, the the um one of the shelters that we work with um here when we have dogs that need to be rehomed, um has um, a very good policy of um of really taking their time with um with finding the right adopters, and they they, they start their, their dogs out with um in foster situations. So the dog is immediately in a family setting, and then once they're settled in that foster home, um, they can take their time in finding the right adoptive family. Um, and that means not jumping at the first person that wants to rehome a dog. Um, it has to be right for that for that individual. That and I is a big concern. It, it, yes. Yeah, and I and I think it's um, it, it goes beyond just being right for that dog. I think it's really important for the rescue community as a whole. To get rescue right because it's um it, it doesn't take very much for for rescue to get a bad name and i think that if um if we take the time with rescues to make sure that we're not setting dogs up for failure by putting them in homes that aren't right for them um and that they get the kind of the the, the nurturing situation that they need and that means you know if you if you can tell that your dog's particularly shy and nervous then perhaps you shouldn't be looking at home with young children um uh making sure that you don't rehome dogs um that need to work through kind of you know food aggression perhaps you don't have a dog um already in that family intelligent adoption i think and i and i think that, that that that's easy enough to do really um and it's important because um, you know rescuing uh, dogs and and finding the right adoption family means that the idea of rescue and adoption can become more widely accepted
0: absolutely and with uh, covid nineteen how how quick was the adoption process? I mean there, there were so many people in desperate need for company what, what happened did Did you have like an uptake or an intake in uh, requests
2: or can you tell us more? Um, well, not here in the UK because we haven't um, we haven't brought over um, any dogs adoption um, during the pandemic. But, um, but in the United States and in Canada, um, we have. So we've closed two dog farms in South Korea during the, the pandemic, and that came with its own complications. It meant that um, one of those farms um, we we could only rely on our Korean staff, we couldn't get any of our um, US or UK team um, uh, were able to, to fly, were allowed to fly into South Korea at the time. Um, and the second farm um, that we had recently closed during the, the pandemic, um, we were allowed to have our US rescuers join our Korean staff, but they all had to um, quarantine for two weeks. Um, in total isolation, in separate hotel rooms at a government-sanctioned hotel, um, which was quite an endurance for them. Um, but those, all of those dogs are, are now safely in, um, in our temporary shelter in either the United States or, or Canada and with other partner shelters. Um, and undoubtedly, when people have been um, isolating uh, in lockdown um, during the pandemic, there has been an increase in interest in adoption because people have been, you know, lonely and wanting to to um, to share their homes with an animal that needs a home, and that does mean that it brings, um, you know, a wonderful new opportunity to find homes. But it still remains the case, probably more so than ever, to make sure that those are forever homes because there's nothing worse than than saving an animal from um, a terrible situation just to kind of you know, shove them from pillar to post as, as, as people pick them up and, and bring them back if they're not really in it for the long haul. Um, so I, I think that the, the, the adoption process is as robust during the pandemic as it would be at any time, making sure that, that people genuinely are making this decision for life um, because just you know, adopting an animal just for lockdown is obviously in, in nobody's interest.
0: Exactly. What is the main focus right now for HSI uh, during COVID?
2: What are you focusing on mostly right now? What's your goal? Um, In terms of um, campaign priorities, I'd have to say for for us here in the UK, our major focus is is our Fur Free Britain campaign. Um, And that, I mean, pretty much all of our work has been touched in some way by COVID-19, whether that's Practical restrictions and having to find new ways of doing things, um, or or whether the actual uh, nuts and bolts of a particular issue have been um, more complicated or, or come to the fore because of um, issues related to the to the pandemic. And the fur trade, as people may well be familiar now, um, has certainly been touched by um, coronavirus because we're seeing. Um, millions of, of mink on fur farms in various different countries being infected um, with with the, with the virus um, and these hugely distressing scenes of mink being um, culled um, uh, during the, the pandemic. And so, you know, for us, we're usually talking about fur trade and calling for an end to the fur trade because of the abhorrent animal cruelty that is inherent. And now... Um, Coupled with that, we're now talking about the threat to um, to human health that fur farms represent because they are just the perfect petri dish for pathogens and, and viruses because of the model of kind of factory farming, intensive rearing of animals in close proximity and low welfare conditions. So it's 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 provided a, a new platform for talking about the fur trade and also opened up to the world the grim reality of the fur trade people have been really shocked to see um mink being gassed and of course that is distressing but those those mink were always going to be gassed for the fur trade it's just that we wouldn't have seen it it would have done it would have been taken place behind closed doors where the fur trade likes to keep its cruelty um and we're seeing that gassing happen uh, in the open air um and being broadcast by the media and i think that that is seems that that the general public needs to see because it is a really sobering reminder um, that these animals really shouldn't have existed in the first place. Absolutely. Uh, There's some
0: positive uh, to COVID, isn't there? Uh, Especially, we spoke about it on International Doga Day, June 21st. When I say positive, um, China recognised, some provinces in China, you said, recognised that... uh, pet, you know, dogs and cats are pets because of COVID. Can you tell
2: us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, I think people, it, it's all too easy to get very depressed sometimes about um, the, the state of, of animal um, protection or lack thereof um, in various parts of the world. And, and China would, would certainly be, be one of those countries that has its issues when it comes to to lack of animal protection, um, no animal protection legislation, for example. Um, But there there definitely is progress in in China, um, a new generation of of Chinese um, who value animal protection, who love their cats and dogs, um, who are eating more plant-based, who are speaking out on Chinese social media. Um, when they see animals um, exploited in zoos and circuses, um, and of course, you know COVID nineteen and the um, you know its suspected origins in wildlife wet markets in Wuhan, meant that suddenly people were having uh, an entirely necessary conversation about how we can't carry on pushing animals to the very limits of their endurance and not expect you know nature to bite back at some point. There has to be consequences of that. Um, and indeed, you know, we've had pandemics in the past that, that can be led back to exploitation of animals in factory farming and, you know, the, the mistreatment of, of animals, keeping animals in, in poor conditions. Um, there was a, a time in, in China, as you'll remember, where people were being evacuated. Um, and they were having to leave their animals behind. Many people were um, evacuated um, very, very speedily and thought that they would be gone for maybe just a couple of days and then they could return to their cats and dogs. And, and it was only once they had been evacuated that they realised that that was going to happen for, for weeks or months. And, and they were very busily bringing up local animal groups, many of whom were um, HSI Chinese partner groups, and pleading um, with them to, to go to their their flat or their house, and um, and rescue their cat or dog or, or feed their cat or dog, um, and indeed they, they did, and we um, were were very proud to to help a number of organisations in those efforts um, and save a lot of cats and dogs. But it was really heartening that um, that that call for help came from from those people who absolutely adore and and care for their companion animals in exactly the same way that we do. Um, and and I was very proud to tell that story in the media at the time, because I think it was very necessary for people to hear. Um, there are often, you know, lots of, um, of disheartening stories that come out of China in terms of, of animal protection issues. Um, and I think it's really important for us to remind ourselves that there are many people that feel very passionately. Um, and there was a really important moment when um, the, the the government made an announcement um, in China declaring that, that dogs are considered companion animals and not livestock, um, and that's not to disregard a really huge problem that we still have with the dog and cat and the trade in China. Um, and you know, I I continue to work very passionately to to end that cruel trade. Um, but it was the first time that the government had explicitly endorsed the idea of, um, of recognising dogs as as important companion animals. Um, and I think that's something that we have to treat as a foundation and, and build on in order to to break down that industry for good. Absolutely. I think,
0: Wendy, this is such progress. I can't... You know, when you told me about it on International Doga Day, uh, the day of the Yulin slaughter, I, I was just interiors that it's happening again this yulin dog Beat festival you know i always campaign with doga i always do my little events and my little demos outside the chinese embassy and i thought oh my god here we go again but you actually really gave me hope and and everybody else who was part of um, the event on instagram that you know no things have changed things have changed Th- things are progressing it just takes time and it, this is coming back to your uh, approach when you when you approach um something like a, a south korean zombie farm you use diplomacy you you use um patience endurance you know and funny enough these are the virtues of yoga as well by the way and listening listening is one of the most important things to 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 progress and move forward instead of just shouting at each other
2: I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to tune your brain that way in order to really make a difference for animals. Because um, you know, it, getting angry is um, is is easy. You know, we can all do that. Um, and believe you me, I spend a lot of time being angry um, and 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 distraught and and sometimes you know, I um, I really do feel hopeless. Um, but I. I have to remind myself that, um, you know, anger isn't going to, to solve the problem. Um, It's just more likely for us to to stay in our respective corners, um, shouting at each other, you have to find a a way through um, and and approach these issues with, with patience and, um, and be in listening mode, no matter how hard you find it. And I think that's probably true of, of any, you know, big social issue that we want to see change, whether it's, um, to do with, you know, women's rights or protecting the environment or protecting children. You, you have to, despite your anger, despite your heartache, despite how passionately you feel, you have to harness that passion in a positive way. Otherwise, you're really just going to end up failing um, those that you're advocating for. They, they need us to, um, you know, lead with, with our head as well as our hearts so Buddhist (laughs) coming coming to just to summon our interview because
0: Wendy I could talk to you forever there's so much knowledge there and I would like to talk more about the Yulin Dogmeat Festival maybe at another time when we're closer to that date Um, but um, I just wanted to say we have so much respect for you the way you progress I have so much respect because like you said the head and the heart has to come together the head and the heart has to otherwise there is no progress i again people say why does it fail why you know one camp this way one camp? at the end of the day you have to have a form of compassion um for to to reach uh dialogue one-to-one dialogue um which is a buddhist principle as well just to close our beautiful hopefully heart-to-heart
2: dialogue uh, i was wondering what do you think about yoga have you done yoga before wendy um I I dabbled with with yoga, money. I'm not going to pretend that um, that I'm. Um, I've spent a lot of time doing yoga, but when I was when I was pregnant, um, I did I did try yoga, um, and um, and I I think it was pretty useful in kind of regaining that core strength, um, or or making sure that you hold on to that core strength after pregnancy. Um, and also just for um, kind of finding some mental stillness, some calm, um, and focusing on something, um, which I think is um, is probably quite useful. Um, so, yeah, for the time that I did it, I, I did enjoy it. I have to say one of the things that I'm really bad at and I recognise that I'm really bad at is taking time out for myself. Is self-care. Um, and so... Um, you know I, I find that um, if I've, i' I pour myself into my work and and that is to my own detriment and I totally recognize that um, and I should take care of, of, of my mind and body better and I'm sure that if I spent more time doing yoga I would be a stronger
1: uh, campaigner for it. <laughs>
0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. We
2: all know how A Christmas Carol begins, but you've never heard it like this. Marley was dead to begin with, dead as a doornail. Now I don't know why a doornail, they've never had any life to begin with, but bottom line, Marley is dead. A Christmas Carol, The Rude Retelling, read by Brian Harvey. Listen to the uncensored version, out now. Find it wherever you found this podcast or go to podfollow.com
1: slash Scrooge. Bah, f- humbug.
0: Well, actually, Wendy... Wendy, this... this... With this, uh, this will lead you into the perfect opportunity right now to try out a little doga, which is the ice thing on the cake, because you can do it with your dog together. So, um, have you tried doga before?
2: (laughs) Um, I have. Well, I mean, I don't know whether I have or not, Marnie. Um, I I have certainly, um, I often sit with Pip on my lap and kind of, I do kind of. Yes, doggy massage and stretching and I don't really know what I'm doing I make it up as I go along but um it's I just I take some time out to just kind of be with the hip and just um I don't really know I don't really know what it is <laughs> and a kind of a cuddling stretching um and he, and he, he likes it Um, and sometimes he just falls asleep. I don't know if that's good or bad.
0: (laughs) That's it. That's it. No, that is doga. That is doga. I always say doga comes from you. It comes from you taking that time out, switching off the phone, just looking at your dog, just acknowledging your dog, then acknowledging Mm. your breathing, and then maybe you can do some stretches and massages. That really is doga, but it is an organic process, and it Mm. it takes a bit of discipline because we just don't allow that extra time to just be in the present moment. So yoga mm. is really, it's very simple, a human yoga practice, but acknowledging the dog. And in the same time, when your dog acknowledges you and looks at you, you acknowledge yourself. If you see what I mean, the dog reflects you in yeah. him. <laughs> it's a, it's a two way thing. Very much like mommy and baby yoga, you know, very much like mommy and baby yoga. Yeah. Same thing. Um, I have Robbie on my lap here now, and he's a slightly fed up because I haven't given him any attention whatsoever, but uh, he's sitting with me now, and I'm just going to go back to my previous exercise that I did last week, from the heart to hound. So this is about the heart today. So we're going to work on the heart chakra, and it's going to be a two-way system. We're going to work on our hearts and our doggie's heart. Are you are you here, Wendy? Are you back? I'm here. I'm here with Pip. Okie dokie. So ideally, you want to turn Pip around on her back. How is she for lying on her back? Is she okay with belly rubs?
2: Well, we'll give it a go.
0: I mean, don't force her. If it's if she's not on her back and she wants to be on her front on your lap, that's fine. All I want you to do is to place ideally one hand on your dog's heart. So just the palm flat, supporting your dog or wherever they are. And ideally, ideally with the other hand, place it on your heart center as well. If not, then just place your one hand on your dog's heart or one hand on your heart. If it doesn't work as a two way thing, Great, so we're going to, just for a moment, exhale deeply. So we're gonna inhale through the nose, and then exhale through the mouth. Again, slowly inhale through your nose. Exhale through your mouth. And as you're doing this repetitively through the nose, inhaling, and exhaling through the mouth, I just want you to become aware of the present moment, your body How does your body feel? Where are you right now in your mind? Just focus on a longer inhalation through the nose and a longer exhalation through the mouth. And now the exciting part just feel your doggy's heartbeat. So, as you're inhaling into your left palm, your hand that is touching your heart, you're going to exhale through the other palm, the palm that touches your doggy. So, it's like you're breathing into yourself. and out into your dog through the heart center just acknowledging your heart rate and your dog's heart rate in and out If your dog goes away, it doesn't matter, you can still visualize this transition. inhaling into your heart center. And exhaling through the palm into your dog's heart center. One more time, focusing on your heart and And exhaling through the door. And now I just want you to place both hands on your sternum. And now just embed, encompass both hearts, your dog's little heart inside your heart. So there's a heart-to-heart moment, breathing into both palms. Keep them on your heart chakra, your heart center. Inhale. Exhale. You can now fully breathe through the nose, in and out through the nose when you're doing this. Just imagine if you could hold your doggy's heart, bringing your doggy's heart into your heart. And just find your shoulders relaxing, face becoming soft. stay in this meditation for as long as you want to, for as long as you need to, and on that note, I bow my head to my heart, and just acknowledge my dog, acknowledge the self, Just say Paul, Namaste. And you can bow your head to your dog. Just, just give him thanks for his presence. For being with you at all times, unconditionally. Teaching you how to love. Teaching you how to stay strong. Stay strong and patience with all your missions, your visualizations that you've made over these years. And I'm just going to close with a "Om," And you can join me on the sound or just hear the sound. I'm taking a deep breath in hand. Om. last time this is for all the dogs in the world this alms sending out all that love through all sentient living beings, including humans. Deep breath, inhale. Shanti, shanti, shanti. Peace, peace, peace. Wendy Higgins, I wish you peace and happiness and oh, patience. <laughs> it's been. I hope you enjoyed that <laughs> A little meditation. I did, and Pitt did too. Wendy, I, I, it's such an honor to teach you Doga. And again, uh, we want to have you on the show over and over and over and over and over again to find out more. This has been so insightful. I know it's just... The, the tip of an iceberg and it goes much deeper but just to find out all all the work that you're doing um it's incredible and i wish you all the best and thank you for this very long interview
2: <laughs> oh my pleasure money I, I thank you for having me and um yeah no i'd love to come back you you know me i i, um, I love talking about animal protection um and it's been um it's been really lovely to chat it through with you
0: And I hope one day we will see you in one of our DOGA classes or maybe a DOGA fundraiser event where we can really breathe together and do this together. It would be amazing. Thanks for listening to Conversations with My Dog. Make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It helps others to find us. And talking of spreading the news, please tell another person about the podcast and help us reach more people and dogs. We'll be back with another episode, same time, same place, next week. Namapaw.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.